welcome to Great Minds. And our guest today is the extraordinary, and I would say as much as any CMO, very much of the moment, finger on the pulse with where we are now, and as important how we got there. I'm talking, of course, about the CMO of Petco, Tara Kassin. Thanks, Matt. Real pleasure to be here. So I, I, I want to go back, and we're going to talk about the current state and the last year and a half or so, I, I guess by now, Tarek, it's been about that long. Um, the role that Petco plays in our lives, the role that pets play in all of our lives has never been more prominent in my mind. I mean, uh, I want to hear that from you, and I'm sure you have some facts and data to either support or refute that. Um, but where I want to start with you is I want to take you back. And I want to go back to 1994 to an agency and we never want agencies like this that were truly part of the lore of Madison Avenue and that's DMB and B. Can we go back to that early early part of your career? I think you were an account director. Yeah, um and you know we'll go back and 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 I'll and I'll go back both with uh a romantic view to the start of my career, but also a tremendous amount of respect, appreciation. And if I look to my career where I am today, um, a tremendous amount of influence into the marketer that I, I became. Darcy was one of the, as you said, one of the real original uh, pre-holding company, pre-acquisition uh, you know, models of all the agencies and was really one of the great P&G agencies. In my case, I worked on a significant part of the General Motors business. And I started as an account director at the same time when the industry was learning about account planning. So I actually was an account director of strategic planning as we were confused to figuring out what it was. But the thing that Darcy gave me was an incredibly unique opportunity um, uh, shortly after joining uh, a year or so in to take on my first international opportunity. And, and it was actually a kind of a funny moment because uh, we were, it was the beginning of, of agencies looking to get global consolidation of, of global clients like a General Motors. And the first opportunity uh, that Darcy got, I'd been working on a task force to try and get new business around the world. And the first opportunity they got was uh, for gen, running General Motors for the Middle East and Africa. And it was headquartered out of a small little place called Dubai. And at the time, Dubai was not kind of on the map the way it is for all of its uh, glitz and glam. And I was uh, in a meeting in, in New York in our, in our uh, Broadway Street office. And I remember someone putting up just a date myself, putting acetate on the overhead. And there was, you know, a couple of years after the Gulf War, and there's this big acetate map of the Gulf. <laughs> and there was sort of a collective gasp of, oh, gosh, who are we going to get to go there? And I had a tremendous mentor, uh, a guy named Joe Plummer, who was chief strategy officer for Darcy back then. And he looked down the table and he said, how about you, kid? <laughs> and um, I'd never been to the region. I'm from, uh, my family's from Lebanon originally, but I'd never spent any real time in the region. And I thought, you know what? You know, no risk, no gamble, no reward. And, and off I went. So Darcy really had a significant impact on shaping my global view and starting to work in international business really early in my career that I'm incredibly grateful for. And you mentioned planning as sort of a new discipline. And I think that's something that's also gotten a little lost in history. As best I understand it, it was really pioneered in the UK. And then planning was brought across the Atlantic to America. I know that you worked, I think, also at Burnett as a planner. Yeah. And it seems like people who have that planner background, it's almost like in music, they say, if you can learn to play the piano, that you can learn to play almost anything. I can't fathom what that actually means for myself, but people who know music, that's what they say about that. It seems like planning similarly prepares you to go in almost any direction you choose. Can you talk about planning and your, your remembrances of being at another great shop, Leo Burnett, but a little bit about that planning background theory. I don't know if I'm right or if I'm askew. No, you're right. I mean, listen, it's interesting, and you brought up the UK and, and the crafting of it there, and really early in the industry, uh, you know, as, as early as the 60s with Stanley Pollitt and, and, and the role that it played in the industry. Ironically, when I spent the time in Dubai with Darcy, I got in a deeper exposure into planning, um, even though I was running the GM business as an account person, I got a deeper exposure because of our link to the UK. 
and spending real time to truly under, start to understand what the craft of um, the distinction between what the role of planning played and brought to the to the process. And I think I fell in love with it. And, and you know, on the lighter side of things, if your analogy is, that, you know, if you learn to play the piano, you can play anything. Um, I had old boss, I had an old boss who probably would have said, if you're an account planner, you can put your nose into everything and be accountable for nothing. Um, but, you know, I, I loved that part of the business because it allowed you to go deep into the client's business and truly understand what we were trying to achieve from a business perspective. It allowed you to go deep into the customer and the consumer and really understand what motivate them at a very different level, using different research techniques, um, using both the right side and the left side of your brain from a data, as well as a qualitative understanding of, of, of what makes customers tick, make them motivate their behaviors, but then be able to go back and work really closely with the creatives and understand how to translate that both into a strategy um, but as a, another mentor said to me once, if you walk into your office and someone's brief is hanging on the wall instead of the work, you probably aren't doing the work right. And so I fell in love with the ability to move between the absolute business problem and trying to distill that down into a simplistic idea that could inspire, motivate, and lead to just outstanding creative that had um, result and had impact. That whole process for me was something I fell in love with and, and why I stayed with it as long as I did. So you're a guy who packs a, a heavyweight punch, right? If this was a boxing match at business, if we believe that being business is like being in the squared circle, which I think to, to some degree, at least it is, it's starting to, the picture starting to come together. You have this legendary opportunity to work not legendary opportunity, we'll edit this. You have this incredible opportunity to work at some of the most legendary independent shops before the age of consolidation. Mm -hmm. You also got at a very young age, the chance to have a global perspective, to pull ideas, not just from the US, but Dubai being what it was even then. Talk about that part, talk about the international part and being in another place at a very young age and really mixing it up big time. Yeah, um, and it's interesting because I hadn't had a lot of international exposure as, as and growing up. Um, we didn't do a lot of international travel uh, as a kid. And I had a professor at uh, Northwestern doing my graduate work, I named Lee Hebner, who was the editor at one point in the National Herald Tribune. And I remember Lee saying, it was an, it was an international program, it was an international course for the quarter. I remember him saying to me and saying to the class, hey, be careful, because once you start to do an expat international tour and you, and you dip your toe into those waters, you're going to be hooked. And he talked a lot about his time where he moved from a place of when he realized he'd been out of the country long enough, he still thought of himself as an American, but gone long enough that he thought of himself as a globalist and what that really meant for him. And, and I remember having a couple of moments uh, early on in that, those international experiences because I was working in, in the Middle East and Africa, but I was also doing work uh, early on with GM in, in China with their joint venture with Shanghai. It just it started to really color my thinking of how to do this and remembered thinking like, this is something I'm really enjoying and I want to figure out how I maintain this. And then I, frankly, uh, fortunate circumstances. When I joined Burnett, I was at the company maybe six months. Um, I remember asking them, you know, Burnett had all these brands. I think they had 200 different clients at the time when I joined. And I said, look, I've been doing cars for the last four years. I'd really like to try something different. And they said, great. How about Oldsmobile? And so I, I, you know, I started and jumped right back into the car business. And a couple months in, they said, hey, we have this great opportunity to get the consolidated business over the Middle East and Africa. You know, you seem to know that area. And so back I went to try and help get the business. And, and then from there, my career just continued to have those international touches. The most significant impact, though, would have been when I joined Foot Cone. And then uh, quickly, we moved from Foot Cone into the creation of Element 79 um, because of the Pepsi Quaker acquisition. And the next eight years working with PepsiCo sort of codified and solidified that international experience because I then went on to work internationally uh, through that entire chapter of my career, um, working with them to take a number of different brands globally. And, and it's something that once you do it, the value and the, and the gift that it gives you is both how it impacts your thinking, 
but not just for the work you're doing there. It pervades your thinking on, on other categories I've gone to work in. And then frankly, as an individual, how I think about the world around me. And you mentioned earlier that your uh, roots are in Lebanon. There is an incredible legacy and present of really creative people in our industry from Lebanon and people that know Beirut talk about Beirut as an unbelievable creative fountain. What is it about Lebanese and, and, and Beirut? What, what's going on there that you guys are punching way above your weight in creative industry and in our industry? Well, you know, I think if you look at the history of the region, you look at the history of the country and you consider the general formula belief that, you know, great creativity uh, in artists, writers, musicians, wherever they're from, generally has a little dash of uh, tragedy, a little dash of uh, challenge and tribulation to overcome. And that's truly the history of Lebanon. Uh, Lebanon has, has, has continues to be a work in progress. And whether it was its early formation or whether it was, you know, a 20-year-long civil war, um, that people learn to endure. But as a result of that, they also learn to live in between those moments. And this is something people who were there during that entire period, um, they talk unbelievably eloquently because they found not only a way to move through with tragedies around them, not just to endure, but to actually live. And, and there's an element of that that still exists in the country. Um, and I think the, la the other part of it is it, it's, a, it's a small country. It's hard to scale in terms of business. And so you inherently had a, a lot of people like my grandparents who left, uh, set out to try and find and set their fortunes in other, other places. And so, you know, look, there's only 3 million Lebanese in Lebanon, there's a, a heck of a lot more of us outside of the country. And so I think there's a heritage of, of innovation and entrepreneurialism. If you really go back into the history, right? Um, and, and go beyond Lebanon, the Phoenicians are considered one of the first trade ports uh, in civilization. I think there's just an element of entrepreneurial spirit and creativity that's part of the culture. Um, that is very much, and, if, and again, if you dip, dip into film and you dip into music and you dip into the arts, it's very much an underlying part of what comes up through all of those elements, whether it's literature or poetry, arts and music, it's present. Yeah, I mean, listen, there's give or take 200 some odd countries. Some countries I you know, would, would draw a blank on if you'd someone said, you know, give me your thoughts. Your country rises to the top of that very short list in the exact areas we're talking about. And that, that really says something. Yeah, you know, um, it doesn't take much, right, for a rose to grow out of concrete. And, and that's a very much um, the experience that I had. You know, I didn't actually make my first trip to Lebanon until I was 25 when I was actually working for Darcy. That was my first trip. Um, and as a child, I remember growing up, my image of Lebanon was actually a suitcase. Family would return, we'd go to visit, and there was always this giant suitcase that would get pulled out at some point during the evening and, you know, would either have letters or photos or gifts or things that suitcase to me was always bottomless, but it, it, it represented this unknown place that my grandparents had come from um, and that my parents and that experience of my family, you know, still maintained it for me and always knew I'd have, um, you know, a, a real pull to it and inevitably, um, you know, married a woman from, the, from Lebanon and still have family in the region. And so it's very much a part of, of who I am. Absolutely. Uh... So well told. So you touched on it, but we've got to go a little bit deeper into Element 79. I'm pretty sure that was the largest startup ever at that time. Talk about the origin of it and you as a founder. Yeah, the accidental startup. Um, honestly, uh, it's a story of, of a moment gone right, um, to be honest. Um, a number of us were working within uh, Footcone when Quaker was acquired by PepsiCo. Uh, at the same time, Footcomb was acquired by IPG, who also had another brand, uh, an, a red competitor called Coke. And so it was a matter of time between, you know, how that was gonna work out. It was pretty clear how that was going to work out. Um, Pepsi fired Footcomb uh, due to the conflict and had to figure out what to do with businesses uh, like Quaker, Gatorade, and uh, Tropicana. 
um, were sitting in foot cone networks, and so as well as Aquafina. So significant Gatorade, or sorry, significant PepsiCo brands. And rather than scattering them around uh, the Omnicom network, which was the predominant holder of, of PepsiCo's business, uh, they provided the opportunity for Element 79 to be created as a, a conflict solution. And a number of us who'd been leading those businesses came together with a really unique moment uh, under the great leadership of Brian Williams to, to start Element 79 on the, on the heels of what was, you are correct, the largest agency startup as a result of the billings from what existed from those PepsiCo and Quaker uh, Gatorade uh, businesses. But we always knew that wasn't where we wanted to stop. We never wanted to be known as a sort of an in-house Pepsi agency. We had aspirations for much bigger. And for the next six years, we lived up to that. Um, and we be, I think we were the second fastest growing agency only to Crispin during that time, uh, adding, gosh, I think in those first six years, almost 20 new business uh, clients and growing revenues uh, significantly. But what a spectacular experience aside from the business to come together with a group of people and create something. Everyone thinks when you start because you're handed the business that it creates, you know, you had the hand up and the way you go, but you still had to create a culture. You still had to create a name. You still had to create a mission and a vision for what you wanted that agency to be. And that was, I will tell you, uh, Matt, those eight years are some of the fondest years of my, of my career. And talk about some of the creative work you did. Cause I do remember you and Crispin alongside each other. You were very much of the moment. And a lot of that was driven by great creative. Which of those campaigns do you look back on most fondly? Yeah. You know, it was a blessing and a curse to be honest. And from the, uh, the growth perspective, um, you know, you, you were the, the Gatorade agency, right? I, I was the head of strategic planning for, a large portion of the agency at that time before becoming the chief strategy officer of the agency. Um, it was the heyday and, um, and the real pinnacle years of a long run of an amazing work that we were doing for Gatorade and not just great work, tremendous growth. Sometimes I dream that he is me. Got to see that's how I dream to be. why PepsiCo bought Quaker, um, both taking a great heritage of a business, reinventing it uh, in a way to bring that story to life in a new way, moving it beyond just Michael Jordan into other athletes, um, but also moving it into different audiences, uh, beginning to work with, with kids and sports, um, really beginning to leverage the science behind the brand and really demonstrating that you could create, you could create a really total story of a business. Um, but equally, we were doing great work around, around Quaker Oats and oatmeal. Every day should start with Quaker Oats. Oatmeal is back in the news. Doctors confirm again, if you're on a low-fat diet, oatmeal can help reduce your cholesterol. And oatmeal, of course, has no sodium. Also, Now, there's some good news for you. Of course, I've known that for a long time. I learned it by making Quaker Oats part of my own diet for my own good heart, my own good health, and just feeling good every day. And, you know, its ability to be heart healthy and take something as boring as cholesterol and, and, and still make it interesting. Um, because we were a business that understood that if you took human truth and you combined it with, with great creative, uh, you had a great story to tell and then make sure that the results were there. And, and everyone always asks why element 79? Um, 79 is the, uh, was the, the number on the periodic table is gold is 79. And it was part of our culture and it was our value that we were gonna function by the golden rule. You, be, you, you behave and you treat others like you want it to be. Um, you also treated clients the way you wanted them to treat us. And with a little luck, we, we put a little gold in everybody's pocket. And that, that was where, where E79 came from, the 79th element. Fantastic. 
and you got to work with, and you, we can all go all the way back to the beginning at Dorsey here, answer any way you like, uh, but you got to work with some really great minds. From that earlier part of your career, you mentioned Joe earlier, but who else comes to mind who you remember most fondly? Oh, wow. You're going to put me on the spot. Uh, there's been, there were so many, um, you know, Jerry Miller was a, a phenomenal creative. I worked with at Burnett um, and gosh, he impacted me as much as a, as a planner, frankly, as he did as a creative mind. Uh, he showed me the power of asking the right question because when you brought him a strategy, he never judged it. He's just always asked another question and they were thoughtful and they made your work better, but they ultimately, when you saw the work that they did, it, it, it made that work better. Um, Element 79, I worked with so many wonderful creative minds there. Uh, I work with one of them again, John Flannery, um, was a creative I worked with uh, both at Footcone and then at Element 79 on, on Gatorade. He, he now actually works with Edelman and works on our business, and it's been a great reunion to work with him again. Uh, Dennis Ryan ran the creative department. Um, Dennis made his... Uh, you know, made his fame across the Budweiser business. Um, and he used proof that, you know, beer advertising isn't just, you know, locker room jokes and guffaws. It's thoughtful. It's smart. He, he was an incredibly thoughtful, creative leader who understood both how to work across tones, how to understand not only what we could sell, but how to sell. Um, and I would say Dennis was really good at helping me understand and continue to understand the importance of storytelling. Um, gosh, there's so many. The leaders on the Gatorade business, uh, Joe Burke and Danny Schumann, uh, classic examples of great creative should be the star, not necessarily the creators. They were humble, smart, and unbelievably gracious in the way that they worked with everybody, whether it was the clients, the production teams, the account teams. Uh, these were guys that just showed up, did the work, and went on to do the next great thing. Fantastic. So I know you had sort of an extended cup of coffee in between going to um, Omnicom for a stretch, but after Element 79 in general, your career took a turn and you went to the client side, HP, Bank of America. Talk about that switch uh, and how it all happened. Were you recruited? Was it something that you sought? How did that happen? Um, how it happened brings, will bring us forward to today as well. Uh, in the end, um, I'm a relationship person and I believe that the relationships we develop are really critical, not only in terms of the work that we do, but the lives that we live. And um, I was fortunate enough throughout my career to establish a number of great relationships. And PepsiCo, I mentioned earlier, was one that because I worked on them globally and worked on so many parts of those businesses, I got to know a tremendous part of that organization. And uh, one individual in particular I ended up working for happens to be my current CEO, um, Ron Coglin. Ron had taken on his first role as a CEO uh, in joining Petco. And early on, uh, had reached out. He had an idea of how to think about repositioning the company with some early work the company had been doing around the nutrition space and reached out to ask me to take on a consulting opportunity. So originally, the, the first call was around doing a consulting project. And uh, I, I guess I should say I'm glad I answered the phone because it's turned into just a tremendous adventure. And I couldn't be more thrilled at where we've been in the last three years. So there's another recurring theme here emerging, which is this can't be a coincidence when you are around, you know, these are the halcyon days of Gatorade and when that brand was really built, you're now around with HP at a time when that brand was arguably, you know, at or near its height over the past 20 some odd years. Talk about that, you know, uh, opportunity that you've had to be part of these great teams and to have a chance to do great work. Yeah, look, I will tell you, um, there are a lot of people that can hang their fame around what has made Gatorade a spectacular brand. There was a chapter before me of individuals who I was still fortunate enough to work with when I joined the business that had really laid the foundation of, a, of, of just a tremendous brand um, and understood not that they were in the beverage business, but that they were actually in the business of inspiration and enablement of athletes, 
right? Uh, I can still tell you the essence of that brand at the time was the will to win and the stuff to make it happen in a bottle, right? You hear that phrase, there isn't a single word about an ingredient inside of it. It was about understanding what the motivation of athletes were and what their role to help them achieve that was. Crystal clear, anybody on that business could have told you right down to, you know, the first person starting on their first day to someone who'd been there forever. That business knew what its North Star was. And it, and it taught me how important that understanding your essence and your purpose of a brand actually is. Um, HP was fascinating. You know, it was at a time when part of the business was incredibly successful. And, you know, just to put it in context, I, I joined there in 2008. Facebook started in 2007. Um, when I first joined HP, people said, yeah, we don't really spend much time focused on Apple. They're too small, right? By, by the time I left HP, Apple was bigger than HP. Um, and so I was there during a time that both the business was showing tremendous growth and success, but I was also working in a division where the focus was on print. Um, and so the question of how do you continue to be meaningful in an industry that thinks it's moving to complete digitization um, and you're about ink and paper, which I will tell you, Matt, um, is another indication of who I am as an individual. I love those kind of challenges. And so I had the pleasure at that time to work for a CEO, uh, Viamish Joshi, who is one of the most amazing uh, right brain, left brain thinkers I've ever met. And his ability to move through both what the data would tell you, but also take in amounts of understanding around human behavior and, and the sociological reasons for things and really allow you to think about how to invent uh, was a tremendous window during that time uh, of a window that actually proved to be a pretty challenging time for HP as it started to sort itself out and eventually move to, it, to its spinoff. But uh, what a great and amazing experience. One of the things when people talk about you, they often cite that you're a guy who likes to have the facts, you want that data you want the consumer-driven insights. Did that come from your roots as a planner and a strategist? Did it accelerate when you went over and you were working on the client side on these you know, iconic brands? Talk about the roots of that because you were to it earlier than a lot of other people. That You were involved and engaged in data when nobody was talking about data. Look, I think if my mom was here doing this interview with me, she'd probably tell you it started a heck of a lot before my creative career. Uh, I think I've been in, in general a, a pretty inquisitive individual um, who was probably more enamored with, uh, with the question why than actually figuring out the answer um, sometimes. Um, I love a great question as much as I, I do finding out a great answer. Um, and, I, and I think that greatness is found uh, by those who are willing and by teams that are willing to continue to push and ask what that next question is. At some point, you have to make a decision, though. And, and having the right inputs to, to call it data and in absence of data, call it the right elements of understanding of your customer um, or have it be about the truth and understanding of who you want to be as a brand because your customers aren't going to stand up and tell you who you should be. Um, that is something that I have always enjoyed. And I think the reason I like it is it's the best way to move from complexity to simplicity. And the reason I like that kind of approach and the reason I like access to the data and the insights is I think I've become quite good in my, in my career. And, and I think it's my approach to life in many ways is to take the complex and figure out how to distill it to the simplistic and bring it down to a level that's just focused and simple and, and, we now live in a world where we're inundated with data. And I think that requirement is even greater than ever before. Right. No, you were, you were early to that dance, to your credit. And uh, yeah, what goes on now with data? I was at the Yankee game last night. I've been to Petco Park, by the way, very good ballpark. Well, let us know when you're back in San Diego. We'll make sure you, you get to another game. One, one of my favorite towns. We had a wonderful vacation many years ago when my kids were young at the Del Coronado and spent the week out there and it was what a mad what what a magical place that is yeah great landmark of san diego so i know you also do some great advisory work but it sounds like you get a phone call from an old friend and end up in this what i would call and only in the highest compliment sense this unexpectedly entrepreneurial company 
that you've led now on the marketing side for the last couple of years as CMO, I guess you're in your third or fourth year by now, Petco. Let's talk, let's talk about the journey to Petco. And we're going to talk a lot about the last year or so and how you've brilliantly navigated the business forward. Um, but let's, let's hear the Petco story. So Ron was you know, a couple months in and, and asked me to meet up and have a quick conversation. He was early days, had a thought on how he could differentiate the business and the company and asked if I would actually take on a consulting project originally to take a look at his idea of repositioning the company more towards a health and wellness focus. And, and his initial thought at that time, when it wasn't quite flushed out to the health and wellness element, was really to lean into things that, that came from his PepsiCo roots around health and wellness and, and the diversification of the Pepsi business by bringing in better for you brands like some of the ones we discussed earlier, Quaker and Gatorade. I had this idea and the team internally had already been working on at Petco, this idea of removing artificials, uh, artificial preservatives and, and artificial ingredients and foods that had those in them. And asked me to come and take a look at developing a strategy to really, to really take the company as a first step of communicating this. So I went in to spend some time with the organization. And what I discovered was a lot more than just the opportunity to work on a project. First, as it related to this initial assignment, the team already had a spectacular understanding of what this potentially would mean to differentiate Petco versus the competition by actually taking this bold of a step. They had an understanding of what to do to replace the implications of a decision like this, because you don't just take $100 million out of your portfolio and not put the revenue back in. We had a tremendous amount of data. 85% of all of our transactions take place on a rewards card. So we, had, we knew we had a gem of an understanding of connecting with customers. But more than that, I got a chance to get out to a few, few of the stores and meet the real secret sauce to Petco, which was our, our partners. 20,000 odd folks on the front lines in 1,500 locations that get up every single day to improve the quality of the life of that pet and their parent, most of which are more interested in you know, working with those animals and making sure they get that quality of life than, than frankly they are with humans at times because of how committed and passionate they are to this cause. So I remember I rolled back to Ron and I said, look, this, this is a great initiative that you're thinking about, but really, how do you do this without really thinking what the implications are for the positioning of the company? And, and he sort of smiled and said, yeah, take a look at that too. And so when you took all those pieces together, you realized the digital era that we really had the makings of starting to become a digitally connected, data connected, connected pet model that could really start to provide a different care model for animals. And really the elements of what has now become, as we transitioned six months ago, to Petco, the health and wellness company that we knew that we would always have retail transaction moments in who we were, but we also knew we had something so much more significant by having access to the vets, uh, the vet business in our business, which, which we're scaling, by having groomers, by having trainers, and by having access to data to learn more about all of those parents we serve and gain data around those pets that they love. When you put those together, we knew we had something that was very different in the market and what's more important, we had an organization that was not only excited by it, knows how to get there and is willing to get there because of what that purpose and that mission means. Okay, so I've got like 19 things that I want to ask you, but I can only do one at a time. Let's go to Yankee Stadium. One of the things that you see now in baseball is the shift and the prevalence and prominence of you know data and analytics. And real baseball people don't care about things like exit velocity. We had Bob Costas on Great Minds. We talked about that. He doesn't like any of it. Doesn't think the game needs it. Doesn't think it makes anything more interesting. Doesn't think people actually care. But every team now is driven by analytics. And they'll have, you know, three guys, you know, between first and second. All the time we see this. You also rely heavily on data and analytics. But what we were talking about at the stadium last night was what about gut? And you're also a gut guy. An entrepreneur, by definition, believes in their gut. Talk about that balance of gut and data on a day-to-day -day basis for you. It's almost like two warring factions at times, I think. 
I love this question. Um, I actually don't find them boring. I actually talk about it for myself. And what I talk to the team a lot about is never losing your intimacy of the data. Data in and of itself are numbers on paper. They give you an answer to the math that you put into the equation at the other end. They in and of themselves do not provide the answer. Even if you ask Google, Google will tell you what data provides you is the next best question, right? If you think about the way you use Google, you're actually asking it questions. It's the question that you ask that allows you to get there. Um, and for me, it's understanding the intimacy of those insights and all of those elements qualitatively or soft data, if you will. So you talked about there being this warring between the two. I find that to be incredibly healthy tension. And I think it's important you maintain tension between what data tells you. Um, and sometimes humans don't behave the way data says it will. And, and, and bring it back to what you talked about. I am absolutely a leader, not only as it relates to my work, um, and sometimes better than other times I do it with my, with my people, um, that you actually need to have that gut. And that as we move into a data world, I, I fear, and I have massive concerns that we're, we're moving to a direction where people get too comfortable with the data made me do it. And I, I don't, I don't think that's a good pathway to head down. Yeah, I, my my only response there, because I'm not nearly as learned about this as you are, is I like it when there's a guy on third base, shortstop, second base, and first base, and everybody's playing their natural positions for all nine innings, you know, but uh, I, I think that battle is already lost. So, uh, okay, another completely different direction. You mentioned 20,000 partners in your Petco family, about 1,500 some odd locations. We're going to talk about all the progressive parts of the business, but a big part of your business is about people. And I don't think this is a, a, a curse word quite yet in business, but you are in the bricks and mortar business at a time when there's a lot of problems that companies are having in the bricks and mortar business. What do you see as the ongoing story for Petco's locations I believe passionately in the importance of retail in bricks and mortar, in what stores bring to communities. And I worry that our elected leaders don't talk about this. To me, the fabric, my town, Port Washington, we have a lot of empty stores. That's bad for the community. And I, I, I worry that as a country, our business leadership, our elected leaders aren't addressing that passionate about its importance to us. Give us your take on the current and future state of your 20,000 people and your 1,500 locations. That's a heavy weight you bear. I'm going to take it to a slightly higher level. And, and I think there to look at it broader than just within our context and, and even broader than within retail. And, and the responsibility actually starts with leaders to define a meaningful purpose for the business that they're in. And that sometimes means uh, becoming masters of the pivot. Just like entrepreneurs have to figure that out, I, I would argue we're in an era where we have to consider what our marketplace is looking for, how they are looking for it, when they wanna be able to access it, where they wanna be able to access it, and why they wanna use those points, and then reinvent and pivot. We would tell you, we think we're in an incredibly spectacular time for both physical location and, and a digital ecosystem to support an omni. And I know that word gets overused a lot, but an omni channel connect to the customer. But not because we put our head in the sand and think we just continue to move down the same rails that have run traditional retail, but rather because, as I first of all mentioned to you, we believe we're in a different business than we were previously. We no longer believe we are just in a retail distribution of merchandise business. We believe that we are in the healthcare business. And when you then shift your purpose to do that, you then look across your entire ecosystem and you redesign what that means at the touch points in which you connect with your customers. 
And a very simple way to think about that, when we reposition the company and rename the company Petco, the health and wellness company, we also stopped referring to our locations as stores. They are pet care centers. And that is because we are sending a very definitive signal to customers and to the market that we are no longer a company that simply competes and should be measured by traditional approaches to the business, but and only competes in specialty retail, but rather we're a company that has built a business and a purpose around taking care of the total needs of the pet, which also connects differently to the customer, but also from a business perspective, connects differently to stating where, how we will drive and grow the business itself because we're now competing for the complete wallet of that pet rather than an aisle or two of the money that's spent around that pet. Because we are now invested in not simply what it is you feed your pet, but we're now invested on the implications of what that happens when you feed your pet. And we're invested in the implications of their health. The most recent example of that is um, this month, our announcement around supporting aspects of, uh, of cancer uh, in, in, in cats and dogs. And we announced an investment in a company called uh, Onco Canine, which is a early detection, early confirmation cancer test. Um, you don't do that when you're in the business of just selling bags of food. You do that when you're in the business of be creating a belief, a trust, and a valuable relationship with a customer in the commitment to the care of their pet. And we believe that by doing that, those not only are those locations to bring it back to brick and mortar, as you brought it up, are not only important, they're more critical than ever. And we're actually, we've seen it through COVID and we're continuing to see it as, as COVID subsides that customers want those locations and they engage in them, whether it's in the merchandise approach to how they buy online, pick up in store or curbside, or increasingly the way that we're going to hope they come in not only to purchase things, but to ask the question, to care for their pet, to train their pet, you know, to care for them with grooming, to, to really think about us as a location that's going to provide that pet a better life. A great example is, is our commitment to cancer. We've recently joined a partnership with PetDX. They have a great product called Oncocanine, which is an early detection and early test uh, confirmation for cancer in dogs. You, you don't do those things if you're simply in the business of selling merchandise, you do those things when you're in the business of total care of, of your pet. And so we think that these locations are, are have never been more important than they are today. Um, and certainly the customer behavior is starting to show that. We're seeing an increase behavior around buy online, pick up in store. We're seeing an increased return to the stores, but we're also seeing an increase in the way customers engage in our, our e-com channel the way that they engage in services like repeat delivery or same day delivery, which we've, we've done through as a reason, you know, all the way through COVID. Um, those are the things that I think, yes, you are correct, Matt. Our landscape will change forever um, with the changing role of what retail and storefronts play in our society. But I believe in many ways, we have an accountability to create new value for what they are in order to play a role in our society going forward. Yeah, no, and, and you hit on it, and it's a nail that we hit quite frequently and as hard as we can too, which is it starts with what your purpose is. And, you know, hearing this, you know, for the first time, hearing this story from you, it, it all makes sense. Each piece builds on the next. And uh, I, 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 this is just a terrific story. So let's pivot again. Something that else... You know, it's just, uh, I can't think of a better person to ask. So we all know that the role of pets has skyrocketed in the past year and a half. If this is the, the, the evolving role of Pets in America keynote speech, and we're in the Library of Congress, and you've just been handed the mic, what do you, what do you, how do you assess that? What's the speech? My speech would be to step back and ask you to understand that the spotlight that has been put on our relationship with pets through COVID is not, in fact, the acceleration. It's not, in fact, the explosion of that relationship. It is just that. It's the spotlight on the relationship that, frankly, we've been building with our pets for a lot longer than the last handful of years. We joke around a lot and talk about how pets have moved from the backyard to the family room, to the bedroom. And for a few of us, they probably kicked a few of us out of the bed. 
the reality is this relation, this relationship has been present. You're, you are correct. COVID created a moment in which, frankly, I'm really proud of the way the country responded. We could have had a real problem on our hands and a real devastating issue on our hands if the number of households that stepped up to either foster or adopt pets didn't do that. But the reality is when you look at the numbers of those adoptions, they've maintained as, even as COVID starts to slow. So if you actually asked me to have that kind of conversation with Congress, it would be to use COVID to finally understand that this moment is actually bringing to light a moment that met millions of households have actually already understood about their relationship with pet. The question isn't what did it do during this past year? The question is, what are we going to do to enable, embrace, and help families as we go forward, as we go back to work? Why can't we come together and figure out how to make more pet-friendly work environments? Why can't we make that a priority? We know there's benefits both to the mental health of that pet, but also to the mental health of the environments that they're in. Why can't we think about ensuring that a family never faces the hard choice between rent and vet care? and putting that pet down. Why can't we, if we're going to allow and follow the humanization trends around feeling great about putting a sweatshirt on our, on our dog, because it's one that we love, then why can't we also follow the humanization trends that we do as a society to ensure that those pets that provide us so much support and so much joy also have those things looked after for them and that we provide systems to support families and we support systems to support companies to ensure the values of these pets that these families already know is actually shared broader. That, that would be my response to them, Matt. It's a, it's a great answer. And the passion that I hear from you here in your answer, you know, we have a, a new pet in my house. We got our, our little Cavalier. My wife brilliantly uh, got us a, a great dog. Finchley is his name. Uh, he's a Cavalier and uh, we love him to death. We've been to a number of pet goes, your boutique shop. And I, I don't want to forget to talk about what you did um, in Union Square, the kitchen. I love that concept. So let's let's remember to go back to that. But what struck me in each experience, we were out to a number of your places in the metropolitan area. The people there are very knowledgeable. And I've gotten used to going into retail and not expecting that much in terms of A, being able to find someone to help. You know, I go to Macy's, I'm not casting any aspersions, but good luck finding somebody in there who can help you. And let alone if you do, that they actually know about the product. In your shops, forgive me for using an old school word, um, it's easy to find someone and they know what they're talking about. And they were passionate about it, not just knowledge. Is that, how is that drilled into the culture so effectively? I think um, if I'm being honest with you, I think it's been at the storefront culture and it's been in our care centers. It's actually been the leadership and the organization in support of those care centers that have come to learn the power of what so many of those people already have known. We are so fortunate to work in a category where you're not convincing our partners to be that passionate about it. They come to this category passionate about it. We capture their contagious approach to it. And in fact, it's part of our leadership model. Um, we have a spectacular store operations leader in Justin Titchy. He turned the leadership model on its head. He turned it upside down. And a very simple statement when in his first year, I'm not confused, I work for you. When you stop and you listen to your people and you hear what they're doing because they're the ones that are on the front line and you provide clear focus, around what the mission is, clear reflection of what the purpose is, and you provide them with the information they need to do their job well, that is when you start to see the results that we have seen. All of us that are in the leadership team, we may be smart people. That doesn't happen without the execution of those amazing people who make this happen every day. Fantastic. So let's talk about a confluence. We've got a guy who is entrepreneurship baked into him, in you. You've got a different ownership mentality, private equity versus public, in terms of embracing entrepreneurship. 
and you have this cataclysmic event that effectively shuts down the world, you've got to re-navigate what you do in store, how you demonstrate that you are indeed essential. I'd love to hear about that. And you also embrace online, full on, accelerate what you're doing there, not only convert existing customers, but you acquire new customers. Let's talk about the confluence of those three things. You know, it's interesting. Um, the, the biggest pivot was actually in ensuring that all of those amazing people that work in our stores were safe. That was the first focus and the, post, the first critical focus. We knew that we, and they knew that we had parents who were counting on us. They knew that there were families that needed to have access to the right food, access to vet services, access to grooming. Grooming's not just a vanity care. There's health and wellness behind the elements of keeping your, your dog well-groomed. And so the focus was really, and I'd say the biggest challenge for us was to immediately pivot to figure out how we could do that well and serve our customers, but do it in a way, more importantly, we served our partners and kept them safe. The other elements that you mentioned, frankly, were all in motion. And what COVID did, and I'm sure you've heard this from many other leaders uh, who are in a similar space as us, it accelerated the things that we were doing. It removed excuses. It took things that might have taken six to seven to eight months, and it removed the reason to not get it done in a week. So we had been testing curbside pickup, test over, execute. You know, we had been working on a pathway to get to same day delivery, test over, get it done. And, and what I would tell you is going back to your question around the role of what you refer to as sort of the role of brick and mortar, the rediscovery of the importance of locations. Because when even the large players, the algorithm competitors, not to be named, we're going to five and six and seven and 10 days from two-day delivery, we were maintaining two to three delay days in delivery. Why? Because of our locations and the ability to move and ship from store and leverage a micro distribution system that people see as storefronts that overnight, and we'd already been doing some of that work, became a strategic advantage and a logistical advantage to serve our partners, serve our customers in the speed and the time that they needed. And so many of the things that we were doing were simply met by the empowerment of, you know, uh, they used to say ingenuity was the mother of invention. I would say pandemic is the new mother of invention. And that's exactly what it did. You saw the amazing innovative mindset of, of a company and a people that had a choice to either lean into it or cower and, and we have an amazing organization that leaned in and, and the marketplace rewarded us. Yeah, no, it's, it's, a, it's a great story, but that you have been there for pet owners, you know, and, and in a heartfelt way. And I, I do think this, you know, whole evolution, looking at the whole health and wellness and the whole equation, it's a brilliant uh, repositioning and evolution of the brand. But Matt, let me, let me be clear. Um, I'm really glad we weren't starting the conversation of what that purpose was and how did we serve it in that moment. I'm, I, you know, as a leadership and as an organization, we had started down that pathway well before that. And it's a really good thing that we did um, because that's not the moment to try and find it. But for those who have it, it was absolutely the moment for it to serve them well and take them to you know, the ability to meet not only what their customer expectations were, but more importantly, what their organizational expectations were to keep their people safe and motivated and still doing what they needed to do. Yeah, no, I appreciate the journey completely. And I think it's very much what we've tried to do managing our little company, you know, to keep our people safe. And then I think we felt very grateful in retrospect, didn't see it right at the beginning. I think it took a while to realize it, but that we already had a plan 
and that we were in the midst of executing it anyway, as you said, it just all moved a lot faster. And what I'm grateful for is that we didn't have to come up with a plan, you know, that we already had a plan and it moved, you know, a lot of chess pieces around the last few years. Yeah, I mean, make no mistake that it wasn't an easy year. We all had to deal with those. I guess my, my point would have been like what you're suggesting. It could have been a much harder year. Yeah, absolutely. So I wanted to wind back to what you're doing in the experiential space, uh, which will return. We are coming back live for the first time at Advertising Week in the fall in October. Uh, if you're still here, we would love to have you on stage. You're really uh, com very, compelling as a, very compelling as a speaker, I must say. I don't say that about everyone. You know, we love that experience. We love uh, what it means to be with and connect with other people and to bring different aspects of our lives and pop culture together. Tell us the kitchen story in Union Square, because I think it's a great one. And is that part of what you're looking to do, those types of things, you know, in 22, as, you know, things in that direction really accelerate once again? Listen, the relationship with a company called Just Food for Dogs that we have a partnership with um, that runs the kitchen in Union Square, which is a unique feature, um, is part of a bigger story. It goes back to that story around making a commitment to nutrition and making a commitment to health and wellness. That partnership would not have been realized along with some other brands that we now carry exclusively um, had we not taken the bold step to remove you know, a lesser quality option from, the, from our, our footprint. That is a great experience. It's one where you walk in and if you want the, you know, the, the, the full proof of human uh, trends and humanization of the way we treat our pets brought to life, it's found in just food for dogs, right? This is, this is food that if it was you know, sitting in a Tupperware container in your uh, fridge and you came home, you might throw it in the microwave and heat it up and think it's, you know, it was stew. Um, it's a great product. It's a great experience. And it's a great way to see where the business is going. We have a, a tremendous uh, excitement around this business and we're continuing to grow it very quickly. But I will, I will also say that experience is going to continue to be not only who we are going forward. I'd say that through COVID, we also learned just our legs around different ways to drive experience. We had to close our training business during, during COVID. And that team said, you know what? How do we do this? We've got families that are now bringing in all these pets. Well, you know what? The team turned around and put training online and, and, and they're doing Zoom classes for training. And that's great innovation and, and meeting a need. Um, we think that the innovation around experience can be fluid. And I look really forward to being in live moments, but I think we've also uncovered some spectacular moments we could do. Just a week ago, uh, my team did a great event with Facebook, a live selling event, part fashion show, and, and part, you know, TVC, you know, the old home network, home shopping network brought to life through, through a platform with Facebook and, and selling a couple of our unique brands like Ready. So I think the, the role of experience will never be more vibrant than ever. I think we're going to continue to see a collision between the digital world and the real world. And I, I've never been more excited about it. And in our business, how can you not, right? Because you can't beat the experience of actually being around the pets and being around the animals. And that's true, frankly, in our work culture, right? You come into our building, I think there's as many folks excited about the potential of getting back to work because of going to visit different pets around the building and different people's cats and dogs around the building as they are about getting back to work with their colleagues. Is there such thing as like the equivalent of a good housekeeping seal of approval for a business that's pet friendly? That's a great lead in question, Matt. I mean, it's something we're starting to look at very hard. You're going to hear more from us uh, over the next coming months about what we're prepared to do. We made a commitment earlier, earlier this year to start to support companies that want to try and make their workplace more uh, work friendly, and you're going to hear more from us on how we're going to formally continue to support companies with that need uh, from everything from understanding the logistics involved with it um, in terms of the physical environment. But there's a lot that actually comes involved with the administrative component of that, uh, as you can imagine. And we're, uh, we're preparing to help companies move forward with that because, as I said to you earlier, our commitment extends well beyond the aisle and it commits to that, the quality of that life. And that means supporting where those pets want to be and where those pet parents want them to be. Well, that was, that was inadvertent serendipity, but I do think it's a good idea. We think so too. 
In fact, you no, know, Matt, it's not only just an interesting thought and good idea. We actually have data that shows that, and particularly uh, in some of the younger uh, cohorts, that knowing that an employer is pet friendly actually influences the decision on whether they want to work for the company or not. So these are not just simply nice to haves. Um, this is what happens when elements become embedded in culture and become influential in the way people actually live their lives. And that's the part we're most excited about. Did you know that Petco is now a health and wellness company? I believe you're the only one who doesn't know that, Avery. <laughs> their groomers work wonders for my confidence. I trust their vets, and I'm known to have trust issues. Might I add, their high-quality food delivered same day, it's given me life. You should see me pounce. Stop sniffing me. I was outside digging. What I miss? Oh, nothing. Just our physical, social, and mental health cared for in one place. Exciting. I'm gonna take a spin around the room. Great idea. Petco, the health and wellness company.